As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to The Game Podcast. This is a podcast special and my special guest is Martin Tyler, the illustrious football commentator at Sky Sports. Welcome, Martin. Hi, Alison. I say welcome, but we're in the Sky Studios. You should be welcoming <laughs> me, really. Well, you're here probably more than I am. I'm, I'm on the road all <laughs> yeah, the time. Yeah, that's true, that's true. I'm, I'm, we see each other mostly at football grounds, don't we? Yes. And what do you shout out when you see me? I shout out Ali, the first lady of football. Well, we've got that on record, so I'm happy. We can, <laughs> we can, we can wrap up now. Anyway, um, when we watch on my sofa at home, when we watch Sky Sports, which we do a lot... The thing that we love most about you in my house is you saying, and it's live. And I want you to tell me how, teach me how to say it the way you say it. Because I don't think any other commentator makes the link between, wait for it, it's coming up. Mm. I, think, I think I've rather cornered the market on that phrase. <laughs> and they can't use it. I'm sure they would love to use it. Um, the truth is, when I started commentating on football, it was all recorded. So I was sort of midway into my career when live football happened on a regular basis when I joined uh, what became Sky in, in 1990. So for me, it's still a thrill to be live, you know. And the way I say it depends on the importance of the game, I think. And I, I didn't say it um, when we had the minute silence for Leicester and for um, the Armistice Centenary. I didn't think it was appropriate then, but... You know, you get various versions of it, um, and it's a it's a useful tool to get into this turbo break that we have, which makes Sky Sports a lot of money. Yes. Uh, the the break nearest to the kickoff, because obviously that's when the audience is is uh, not exactly at its peak, but it's certainly bigger than it is when we go on the air. Although the presenters probably won't need to say that, um, but obviously people switch on to watch the match, and that last ad is a very important part of our business plan. So rather than try and come up with various different ways of getting into it i tried and it's live and it's stuck so <laughs> i do get stopped in the street and people ask me to say it and, really uh, yeah uh, but it, it, it is just a broadcasting tool really and and, and it, it is from within me actually it's, it's not just a, a cerebral thing I, it, I, I, for me it's exciting to be a live broadcaster having done so many years as a recorded highlights commentator oh well you've shattered a myth which is that it might you might have six versions on pre-record Every single and it's live is a new and it's live. Absolutely, yeah. But I think, okay, it's just one phrase and we've been laughing about it, but I think it sums up why you're a good commentator because it's a phrase that could be naff, it's a phrase that could sound fake, Mm. it could be a phrase that is buying into the hype, as you say, every game is worthy of it. Well, it is. But but you make it sound real. To be honest with you, any game that is live is worthy of 
my full attention as a commentator. Um, I got asked before the Manchester derby the other week, oh, it must be very special. I said, it's very special because it's the next game. And this is not trotting it out for your benefit or for the listener's benefit. Every game that you do as a live broadcaster is, is important. You can spend um, 40 years building a reputation and you can lose it in 40 minutes. So you have to work really hard at every game that you do. And I know you're going to ask me some questions about the past, but for me it's always the immediate future that matters. It's always the, the next game. And um, as soon as England finished really yesterday driving home, uh, I'm thinking about my, my next broadcast. OK, let's get the past out of the way very quickly then. <laughs> Did you used to sit in a cupboard and look at pre-records of things and add your voice to them? Is that what you started out doing? No, no. Some people do that. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and, 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 and now there's, in, in the old days, and that was one way of trying to get yourself um, in the zone, I suppose they would say now. But there's so many media courses and broadcast training facilities now that any would-be commentators have a wonderful chance of... Um, being taught by the right kind of people and not having to make it up as uh, they went along as I did. <laughs> no, I, I wanted to um, be the person. I, I would say I shout goal for a living. Um, <laughs> I wanted to score goals for a living. And, you know, I, was, I had a go in non-league football and I'm reasonably pleased with what I achieved given my limited amount of ability. Um, so, what was, your, what was the one moment in your football career? The one moment? I got a phone call from Wheelstone Football Club saying they wanted to sign me. That was a special moment because I hadn't uh, hadn't really, you know, put myself in the shop window, so to speak. I was playing against them and I uh, must have done okay in a game. Um, but I didn't go. Had I gone, I still see the manager who who wanted to sign me. He's well, I'm a rare old age. He's older than me. Called Alan Humphreys and. Uh, I saw him earlier this year, and I said, if, if I'd have signed for you, I would not have had a commentating career because I would have done better at football because they were a better club. Um, but it didn't happen. So, why, no, why, did, why didn't you go then? i tell you why I didn't go. I lived in South London, and I was offered some money if I was in the first team. And I said, what happens if I'm in the reserve? Wheelstone then played in, in uh, Harrow and Wheelstone, wonderful ground actually called Lower Mead, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and um, they said, if you're in the reserves, you don't get any money. And I didn't really believe in myself, and I couldn't afford to commit to something where I had to pay my own expenses to come fly. So um, I didn't sign, and I'm sure it was the right thing. But I have a joke with Stuart Pearce, who did play for Wheelstone. We, we talk about it. Stuart's obviously mixes his football career with being in the media. And we see me. He's actually in this building as we speak now, working for Sky Sports News. He wouldn't have been teammates because he's a bit younger than me. But he might have come to watch me play <laughs> in all those years gone by. But no, that's what I want. I, I sort of found myself um, needing to be out at football matches on a Saturday afternoon and talking about them. I was a bit better at that than I was at playing the game. What was your position? I was a striker. I knew you were a striker. Yeah. I just wanted that on the record. <laughs> Do you think... It's the best feeling in the world, scoring a goal, and, and that's why perhaps I, I love the moment as a commentator when, when people score, because I know how difficult it is. Yeah, I was going to say, do you feel that's an important part of your CV, that when you do profess an opinion, there's at least a part of you that understands the pressure of what might look like an open goal and missing it, or that mm. it's not as easy as it might look if you haven't been through it? I, I don't know. I, I think every commentator has its own particular strengths, whether it's use of words, um, broadcasting technique, great research, 
and great grasp of the stats around the game. You know, I'd, I'm at the game because I love it. I'd be there if I if I wasn't. I always say to to people, you know, I'd be at football. What, what are you going to do when you finish? And um, I don't think about that very often, despite the fact that one or two of my contemporaries have, have retired recently. Um, but I go to football, so it's it's just been so lucky, Alison. Really, I've got no real football in my family. Um, they were all cricketers. I, I did want to be a professional cricketer as well when I was a at school and I shared a flat with two guys who went on to captain their countries at cricket, Bob Willis and with England, Jeff Howarth with New Zealand. So there was a lot of sport in my early years. I used to go to West Byfleet Recreation Ground where I grew up. My dad had an ironmonger's shop in West Byfleet. We lived over the shop. Recreation Ground was just down the road. And I can remember probably one of the first footballs I was ever given. They played um, Saturday afternoon football on the rec in some sort of intermediate league. They put the nets up about 15 minutes before the game started, and then they went back in. These are the players. They went back in to just prepare before coming out to play, and we had about five minutes where the nets were up and there was no one on the pitch. And I just remember the love of smashing the ball into the net, and I've never lost that love, whether it's something that I I can't do, although I, I coach and I'm on the training ground two or three times a week. I can't smash the ball anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> but it's just it's just a great feeling. It's a, it's a simple game and um, a game that anybody can play, male or female, old or young, tall or short, fat or fit. Um, it's just it's just great. What was your first commentary? What was your very first oh, I can tell speaking you that. to the people? Um, what actually happened was I gave up playing football because I got offered a job. I, I had a journalistic job... From no experience, um, I did have a university education which helped a little bit, a lot actually. Um, and I got through, as, as it was in those days and back in the early 1970s, who you knew really. I got uh, told that there was a football magazine starting. It was a part work actually, it was um, not a magazine in the sense of being newsy, it was something that you collected in weekly parts and it formed a football encyclopedia after 75 weeks. You could get binders and you put each edition in the binder. And I found out that this was starting and somebody said to me, you should go for that. I was on the dole in Brixton at the time, so, and you should, but I was playing. And, uh, and I phoned up and the guy said, well, this is top secret. You shouldn't know about it. And all I knew about journalism was when he said, how did you find out? I said, a journalist never reveals his sources. Um, and I blagged an interview and blagged a month's trial on this magazine, which worked for the 75 weeks of the of the publication. In that time, I met a wonderful guy called Brian James, who um, worked for the Times, Sunday Times, worked in the 60s for the Daily Mail and covered the World Cup. He knew everybody. And I think he saw something in me that uh, perhaps reminded him of himself or I had the drive to, to try and earn a living in football if I wasn't going to do it as a non-league centre-forward. And anyway, I did that for about 18 months, and it ran out. 75 weeks ran out. And they said, you're a staff writer now. You can write on our next part work. And I said, what's it called? It's called Golden Hands, and it's about sewing and (laughs) embroidery. But you can write about anything you've shown me. I said, no, no, no. So I got a bit of freelance work, and I was still playing. And one of the jobs I got was ghosting through Brian James, who knew everybody. Jimmy Hill, who was very big at the time, and for a long time, and, and first of all as a footballer and as a players' union chief, got rid of them 
maximum wage and all that and then manager at Coventry and was now a, a television personality, a big television personality. He was so busy he couldn't write his column for a Sunday newspaper. So somehow Brian managed to wangle for me to do this. So I was ghosting Jimmy Hill's column for maybe the News of the World or the Sunday People. Or something. I can't remember that detail. But in those days, of, I, think I, I couldn't type. I'd not been trained in anything. I wrote it out in longhand and I delivered it. He'd, he'd ring me on a Tuesday and say, it's about Brian Clough this week. So I had to chase down Brian Clough and get quotes and things. It was very good training for me. But then I wrote it out on the Friday and I would go to his flat in Notting Hill and deliver it through the letterbox. And around the time I was doing this, I got a call from LWT. I'd met the guys from LWT because my article in the magazine needed some television help. We were doing tactical things and we needed some examples of the tactics. So if it was like a free kick over the wall, for example, we'd have to go and we would get an artist and go in. There were no video recorders in those days. The artist would see the the actual tape recording in LWT. We couldn't get it any other way, so we went into the building. So I got to know these guys behind the scenes. Anyway, I got a call from LWT and said, we're one short for next season behind the scenes. What about you? And I went, no, no, I'm, I'm playing. I'm, you know, I can't, I can't do that. Thanks very much, but no thanks. One morning I, I delivered Jimmy Hill's copy, and he was there, which was very unusual. Come in, have a chat. What are you doing? Oh, by the way, I've just turned down a job at your place. It was, he'd just left to go to the BBC. And he said, you've turned it down. And I went, yeah, well, I want to play. And uh, he, he said, how good a player are you? And that was a pretty good question because <laughs> I was pretty honest with him. He said, look, um, take the job. You never know where it will lead you. And it's led me to meet Alison Rudd in the Sky Sports <laughs> Studios here in 2018. And that was in 1973. So I went back and phoned. I did literally do what he told me. I went back and phoned up again. Is the job still out? Yeah, yeah, we haven't filled it. He'd come in for an interview. And I went in and I got a chance to work on the football programs of the day at LWT, which was On the Ball, the preview program, fronted by Brian Moore from the ground of a, of a foot ground that he was going to cover the match in the afternoon, and the big match, which was a prestigious Sunday afternoon highlight show, and the ITV equivalent of match of the day. So I was cutting the goals together, you know, and I, I was stuck in the studio, and it was good experience, and there were great people to work with, some of whom are still working in television now. Jeff Fulser, a good friend of mine who, owned, who runs Sunset and Viner Production, he was there. Actually, my first day in LWT was Jeff's 21st birthday, so I turned up expecting to you know, be given a, a real education in, in the arts of uh, television and behind the scenes, what you had to do. At 12 o'clock, John Bromley, who ran LWT, came in and said, right, we're off now. And I went, well, what's, what's going on? He said, we're going across to the Sportsman's Club, it was called, in Tottenham Court Road. It's Jeff's 21st. I said, well, I'll leave my bag. He said, no, no, you won't be coming back. <laughs> and, I, and we didn't. And that was my first day in television, about three hours sitting there nervously, and then eight hours, I don't drink, but the rest of them are on the lash <laughs> in, in the West End of London. So maybe that was a, a, a good way to start. So um, I had a, a season behind the scenes, but I... I wanted to get out, so we worked a system where there were three of us doing two jobs. So every third weekend we got off because we worked so long and hard in the other two weekends all into the night and, and the small hours of the morning to get all the edits done. And none of the technology that's there now, really. It was, it was pretty basic when you look back on it. Um, so on, one day I, I got a little um, cassette recorder 
I asked if I could go to a game at um, Arsenal just to talk into it, to see what could happen. So I did that. It was a great game. I think it was 2-2 draw against QPR. I had a great team then, Stan Bowles and people like that. It was a smashing game. So I got this. So, of course, when you're, in, when you're on the inside, you can play it to somebody who matters. And I played it to the match director, a wonderful man called Bob Gardam, who's sadly no longer with us, but had a, a great influence on, on what's happened to me. Um, and I, he said, well, that's not too bad. You should do another one. Anyway... A few weeks later, I was aware that we had open plan offices and that Bob was feeling a call about somebody wanting a commentator. And it was what is now Meridian Television, Southern Television. They needed a commentator for one game on December the 28th, 1974, Southampton against Sheffield Wednesday. And I twigged this while this phone call was going on. And he was sort of half looking across at me and I'm thinking, well, half of me is going, please say it's, I'm the person to have a go at this. And the other half of me was going saying, for God's sake, don't, <laughs> I have no experience. Um, anyway, he did, he, he recommended me to do it. I then had to do a proper trial for them, which I did on, a, on another game on my, my weekend off. And then on December the 28th, 1974, having had the most nervous Christmas of my entire life, <laughs> I couldn't eat any food. I trotted off to the Dell and... Um, very nervously did my first broadcast. And it was Southampton were in the second division, the championship now. They had um, the nucleus of the side that went on to win the FA Cup in 76, sort of 18 months later, under Laurie McMenemy. But the star player, Mick Shannon, was not playing in this game. And Southampton were dreadful. And they lost to Sheffield Wednesday, 1-0, December the 28th. And this is a fact, Ali, the fact that I still I have to go to the record books to look at, but it is true. Sheffield Wednesday won 1-0 at Southampton on December the 28th and did not win another league game all season. Uh, so you can imagine the sort of despair around the Dell. And one thing, as I commented, you really need the crowd to work with. Uh, goodness knows, I, I, it must exist somewhere, but I would, you'd have to drag me screaming to listen to it. But <laughs> I did the game, and the director... It's going back this way in television now, but in those days, it was very much the norm. We've had the sort of specialist years in between. Um, you could be doing um, light entertainment and soap opera or something in the week, and then you do a football match. <laughs> and the guy who, Stephen Wade, was a very distinguished director who'd done Sunday Night at the London Palladium, which was this top ITV show of, of the late 50s, 60s, spawned Bruce Forsyth and people like that. And he was rather plummy. And uh, at the end of the game, he said to me, well, it's not bad, old boy. We've got another game in a few weeks. Would you like to do that? And glibly, I would say, people have been saying that to me ever since. <laughs> so um, it, was a, it was a very, honestly, it was, when I look back at it, how on earth did that happen, that happened? Connect? Maybe. But did you have a thrill? Did you know when you were at the Dell, did you th even while you were doing it, I know you were nervous beforehand, but mm. did you think, yes, I like this, I could get... Oh, well, I was this. watching football, <laughs> and believe it or not, I, I, I did get paid for it, and, and I suppose, you know, that wasn't the important part about it, because it was quite tough to get through beyond that to where, within eight years, I, I did the World Cup final for ITV, which, looking back, is, is ridiculous, really. I mean, that was through another set of fortuitous circumstances. But, um, yeah, I suppose that must have been something. I was competitive, because mm. I played sport, and... So uh, I suppose I, I looked at it and thought, yeah. I mean, those who work with me, like Jeff, Jeff also I mentioned, would say, would say look, we, they all put themselves out for me, all the people I work with, because 
when I was offered the next game, it wasn't on one, my, one of my weekends off. So, you know, they had to change their shift. So there were people really kind to me, Mark Sharman, Richard Russell, people from that, from that behind the scenes there who, who put themselves out so I could go and commentate. And they, they must have seen something in me as I know, that I'd be pretty miserable if I hadn't been given the time to do the game. And, and I was still doing that. I did two years with um, Southern and then... I was into a, a sort of face-off with two other commentators for a, a proper job at Yorkshire Television, which is a major ITV region and still is, um, which would have been commentating every week. But I was still in this um, system of working at LWT where I only got one weekend off in three. They said, you can do a trial, you have to do three games in a row. So I had to twist everybody's arm to help me out to do that. And then... Eventually, after the other two had three games in a row, so after nine games into the 76-77 season, I was told that I got the job for the rest of the season, but I was still... And they said, you can't go to, you can't. And I go, well, I've got to. And the first game was Leeds v Liverpool, <laughs> which in the 70s was, was the game, you know. And I thought, oh, please, 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 please. Um, anyway, they saw a desperate young man and helped him. So, <laughs> and... There we are, 40 years later. I'm not quite so desperate, um, but I still love doing it. Are you you, or is there, is it partly a job about acting? Do you become the role of commentator? I.e. you can't relax too much and say the things you'd say on your own sofa. You are you have the persona of commentator, or is it you? I'm certainly not an actor. I've got a daughter who's an actor, and she would tell you absolutely straight that I'm not... <laughs> Um, no, I, I've, I've tried it. I've, I've been in a couple of films. I was pretty dreadful. Um, what films were you in? I was. I've been in films as myself. Um, Goal, where I'm sitting in a in the police. Actually, I'm sitting in the police control room at St James's Park, pretending it's a commentary position. Um, and uh, so did you find it hard being you in a film? No, no, no. They, they they let me do my own lines. You know, there's no script or anything like that. So, um, now it's me. It's it, for better or worse, it's me. And I guess maybe more of me as I've got more established. But no, I do say the things, and I I regret saying some of the things that, that I would say on the sofa. I mean, I got to the impassive Gary Neville reaction when I said that Bobby Wood, the strike of the USA comes from Honolulu, Honolulu, born in Hawaii, and he hopes the score isn't 5-0. <laughs> uh, it was 2-0 at the time. And Gary didn't laugh at all. But that's funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I, I now say them without worrying too much whether Gary laughs or not. One or two laughed in, in my ear in the truck. So, But I don't say it. I mean, it's just a, just a, it's the sort of thing you might say on the sofa. Yeah, I've probably got people listening to this who's saying, well, just shut up. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm, listen, I, I want to represent the supporters. I want to represent what, um, what they're feeling. I'm a football fan. I would be at the game if I could afford to be at the game. If I wasn't in this business, um, I hope I connect with what, what they're feeling, even bad puns as well, you know. But uh, I'm well aware of, you know, because I'm involved in football at different levels, I'm well aware of the, the issues about the game. And, you know, I'm, sometimes I have an opinion on them. Mostly I'm just there to glue it together. The people who really matter at Sky on the football are the 
the Gary Nevilles, the Jamie Redknapps, the Jamie Carragers, Alan Smith, who I've worked with a lot. Uh, I did the computer game FIFA with him as well. And the people in front of the cameras are the ones that resonate and I just try and keep it safe and simple for 90 minutes, really. So modest. Do you ever? Do you ever? It's true. It's true. Honestly, I really feel that. I I think part of my job is to get the best. I I have obviously a direct relationship with the, the, the co commentators, and I think part of my role to give them the best platform to be what they're there for. So, um, you know, that, ma- that makes it quite different when you're working with different people. But if they've had a good day, I'm, I'm really happy. OK, so set the scene. So you're sat next to, you've mentioned Gary Neville. Let's use Gary Neville in this example. You're sat next to him. Do you open your hand to let him know you want him to speak? Do you punch him in the ribs or do you no, pull funny no. faces at him? How do you make sure you've got the dynamic going that he'll speak when you want him to speak or he can't speak because you know there's a potential goal coming? On the potential goal, I think they all realise that um, I think we've had one goal missed in, in my time at Sky. Missed, if you like, from my point of view because others, somebody else was talking when it happened. Now, they all know when the ball's in the penalty area or they just back off and say I'll come back to that in a moment they're all very good at that Um, no there's there's no um, no body language at all we just talk you know it's always been since co-commentary came in um, which came in with live football really I think in the old days it never happened to me but I'm told by uh, the BBC commentators of of times gone by that they had one microphone so as the main commentator you, you, you were in control you gave it over and you'd grab it back if but that, I've never worked under that basis, ever. So, um, no, it's a two-hander. And as I say, I think the strength of Sky is that the I don't know, analysts, I prefer to call them rather than pundits, pundits, I think it's more than punditry. I think it's deep analysis and great thought and great experience in the game and, and a wonderful way with words. I mean, I'm... I'm in awe sometimes of some of the phrases that they come up with and I think gosh I've been doing this I'm supposed to be good with words (laughs) and I remember when when, um, Gary Neville said there are weeds in Manchester City's garden and when they were those must have been a few years ago now (laughs) because they're all flowers in the garden now aren't they but um, I'm not frightened of saying that (laughs) on the air saying wow where did you get that from you know how often do you think 20 seconds two minutes too late Oh, I wish I'd said that. That would have been a really great comment or pun or insight, and I've lost the moment there. No, you can't beat yourself up on that. All I can say, really, a wider answer to the question is there's about three or four games a year, and let's say I do 100 games a year, I I don't count them, but three or four when I'm really happy because you're constantly seeking perfection in a discipline where there is no perfection. You, You cannot without a script, um, which we don't have a script. You cannot, without a script, um, come up with with a a wonderful um, Booker Prize winning novel equivalent of of the spoken word. Um, When when you're reacting to things, you're not not creating it yourself. It's a reactive job. You know, it's in simple terms, identify the players, make sure you get that bit right. That's very important. And television's no hiding place in that respect. Try and find the right kind of time for information. I, you know, it struck me, Harry Kane's been on seven games without a goal until he scored against Croatia, and he's been on 19. And for me, you know, 20 is always for strikers. It's always, when I was playing, 20 goals a season was, well, that, that was, you got to, when he got there, if you get there by, 
in my case, usually by the end of April, but, but, but some players by November. And, and Harry got to 20 goals for England, but it wasn't the major thing to say. If he'd done it against the USA, he didn't play, but if he'd done it against the USA, you might have said, well, there is his 20th goal for England. Um, so you, you try and feed that in at a, a lesser point. But one thing that I would like to put straight is um, we do not think up lines to say how anybody thought I could have um, envisaged on the, the Sunday morning of May the 13th, 2012, that Sergio Aguero would score a winning goal with the last kick of the 20th Premier League season when his team was 2-1 down going into stoppage time and that I'm, I had it all written down in front of me what to say. Um, you just have to be... Yeah. If you love the game, it's pretty easy. I mean, history is made in front of your eyes. You, you know, I don't really think about anything else, you know, so... I should be able to react to um, to what it means. I think there's a, a lot of what if in preparation, but football constantly surprises you, and you have to, for example, realise that England beat Croatia by the same method that Croatia beat England, going a goal behind and coming back to win two one. Yeah, method's the wrong word, but you know the same um, storyline. Uh, so there's a certain symmetry in that. You mentioned Aguero's great finale. Is that would that be fair to say that's in your top, I don't know, top five of matches where you thought, I'm darn glad I was there for that and I hope I did it justice? Or is it, isn't, is it not? I don't know. You mean you've done World Cup, so I don't know really oh, what. Yeah, of course, I mean, it's the one that I get talked about a lot. And, and, but it's, it's Sergio's moment. And, and, <laughs> no, it's your uh, moment no, too. No, well, if I've hung on to his coattails or his <laughs> back of his shirt, then fair enough, but... Um, yes, I, I remember, I've said that a, a lot of times about it, that being there is not my choice. I mean, I'm, I'm sent to games. I have no choice, as, as, and nor would I want to have a choice. There was a time, and there'd be some people who know me well who might listen to this, there was a time where I, I signed a contract that actually gave me the choice of matches, but it didn't work out. It wasn't right. And, and in the end, you want somebody else to send you to where you go to. I'm sure that happens in your career as well. And, and choosing, if you choose the wrong one yourself, then you've only got yourself to blame. But if it's wherever, um, wherever you get sent, um, I was sent there that day. Um, I, I can only remember complaining once about being sent to a game and then having to really backtrack afterwards. There was um, a Champions League game, and Sky had the Champions League, where Milan played Deportivo La Coruña, and uh, Milan won the first leg 4-1. So, and I was sent to the second leg, and there were like you know, half a dozen broadcasters there when there's normally like 30 or 40 on Champions League. That's different channels. And because you'd yeah. been to university, you were thinking, fate accompli. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking, job done. And uh, anyway, um, La Coruña won 4-0. <laughs> And I remember coming back and Vic Wakeling, um, who was sadly departed, uh, our boss here um, at the time, I remember going to him and saying, thank you so much. I'll never see another evening like that. You know, it was, it was, it was extraordinary. And we all felt, that, I remember the RTE were there, the Irish commentators there, and they said the same before beforehand, George Hamilton, probably Johnny Giles or someone like that. And uh, we were just like, we went and had a coffee afterwards. We went, wow, <laughs> aren't we lucky? <laughs> you know, it was one of the great comebacks. So it's best if, if people send you. And I was sent there that day, but I remember with 20 minutes to go thinking, well, um, my good friend and colleague Rob Hawthorne was up at Sunderland doing the Man United game. And 
thinking, well, I've done all this preparation for the presentation. Um, I even knew the names of the children of the City players and because they tend to take them on the pitch and uh, Manchester City had been really helpful in furnishing me with this information. I'm thinking, I wonder whether Rob's got <laughs> all the stuff. I think, well, at least the kids won't be there because it's an away game yeah. for Man United <laughs> and he'll have enough to say about how, they, how they've won this title. But I remember thinking, well, he's going to... because. Uh, I don't think it's a big secret. There are two trophies, and they yeah. had one one in the northeast and one in the northwest. Um, so yeah, it unfolded, and yeah, it was special. I mean, there are times where where you wish you were there, and, and I wish I'd been there in the 1966 World Cup, which remains the uh, the, the pinnacle of, of football in my lifetime. And um, just came across the other day, Jeff Hurst finished on 49 caps, you know. And, and he's fit enough to get the 50th. Well, why can't he come on for two minutes in England's next friendly? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's in great shape um, after the Wayne Rooney um, send-off. Yeah. Uh, so th- that was, for me, one of the thrills at Sky. I mean, I love commentating, and I'm pretty useless at everything else on the television throws at you, but I was asked to present the Boys of 66 50th anniversary programme, which was... a a great privilege to do and uh, and funny enough in the 66 50th anniversary they were um, did a monday night football special on it with gary and jamie and and uh, they had action they, like 45 minutes of action they got the rights for the game and both commentary is a, a bit of a, a rights issue as well and the bbc wouldn't allow kenneth wolstenholm's iconic commentary to be used on sky sports so I was asked whether I would do a retrospect. I mean, pretending I was yeah. there at the time, being of such a senior vintage that people might not raise too much of an eyebrow. Uh, I was, what, 18 at the time. And uh, I thought, wow, I thought, no, I thought, this is ridiculous. I couldn't <laughs> possibly do justice to it. And I remembered ITV covered the game live as well. And Hugh Johns, who was a senior broadcaster when I started back in the 70s, and did a very, very good commentary on it, but never gets heard because obviously the BBC one is the, is the one that people remember. So ITV very kindly allowed Hughes to be used and it got heard again by the modern day audience. And I, w- I was pleased for the, for, for the memory of Hugh Johns that I have. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. You are serving the people who buy Sky Sports and sit on the sofa, and are not at the game, on the particular game you're commentating at. But I'm very aware that when you do commentate, if there is a fan issue, if there's been a problem getting crowds to the game, or there has been an issue, you always are on top of that and explain if the crowds are particularly good you will give them a applaud it you will say the atmosphere is amazing there is a lot of unrest at the moment about fans feeling alienated they you know sometimes they're on the road for 12 hours and they wonder at the money in the game and how a lot of it is just still being squeezed from them when there's no need to and given the hat you wear because you're you're serving the customer who's warm and cosy and yet that customer will only have a better experience if they're listening to great songs being sung and roars of joy what do you feel when you're there do you feel with the crowd or do you keep reminding yourself I'm serving somebody who isn't here I mustn't get too carried away with what it's like live how do you square that circle of all the people you want to Gosh, acknowledge. You've put a thought into my head that will now make me neurotic. <laughs> I, I never think of these things at all. Um, I am well aware that I have an audience listening, hopefully listening. It's, sometimes it's a bit Muzaki commentary, I think. People have it on and they sort of tune into it in their heads when they want to know what happened there, what's he saying about that. Um, but yes, of course, it's, it's very important what the what the audience at home thinks about me. But I think it's the same. I, I do feel um, everybody back on, on the sofa would probably like to be at the game, um, but for all sorts of reasons they can't be. Um, obviously, the vast majority can't be. Um, we, we're dealing with sellout crowds in the, in the Premier League more often than not, uh, and it is expensive, um, but that's the economies of life. It, it's, you know, I think... Um, Buying a house is expensive. Buying a car is expensive. Buying, in my case, a suit. Commentators are not the best-dressed people in the world, so we get away with it a little bit. Um, but buying um, warm clothing is expensive. So uh, I think, I think um, the price of football is, is a market force thing. I, I can't get into that. And that's the, if, the, if the fans don't want to go, that's their right. But they do want to go, and they're marvellous people. And they, you're quite right in one of the sub-clauses of that rather lengthy question, is that we can't manage without the fans in the ground. I mean, if you look at a game and there's nobody there, you're thinking, well, why am I watching it? You know, what, well, why is um, the supporters and the, and the noise? It's wonderful the, the, when you have... One, one of the problems on my first um, ever game that I talked to you about just now was that the one goal was scored after two minutes by the away team and there was no noise. <laughs> so my first goal was, um, was uh, you know, I, had, I, I learnt straight away. Actually scored by a, a guy who I've always remembered with affection, Eric Potts, who was the only ginger-haired player on the pitch for identification he was absolutely perfect for me for my very first goal as a television commentator early goals can catch you out because you're not really into the rhythm of, of maybe the, the whole identification thing so that was two minutes in and Eric, Eric did it and uh, I've never forgotten him I always think of him with great affection but they, yeah, you love working with a, with a big crowd noise and, and therefore within the stadium that's a very important part of what you do. My expression is the smell of the fixture, really, and the build-up to it as it's going on. 
Um, what really does it mean? You know, what does it mean to the individuals within the team? Um, you know, I love the, the, the being able to reflect the, the privilege of meeting the guys. You know, and I mentioned Bob Garden before, who was the director of the the big match. He was unusual in the heat. He was very much in the players' lounge after games, and he knew the and he knew who would give a fantastic reaction when a goal was scored. He knew the personalities of the players, so he got wonderful shots that maybe would have escaped other directors. He got the shot of Bob Stoker. This is going back way back, and the year I joined ITV, this had happened before I joined the Sunderland Cup final when Sunderland beat the great Leeds team. 1-0 at Wembley in Porterfield's goal. But at the final whistle, Bob Stoker, the manager, ran to Jimmy Montgomery, the goalkeeper, ran across the pitch and leapt, they leapt into each other's arms. And at, at that time, ITV and BBC had uh, separate camera teams covering the final. It was a big rivalry. And the joy at ITV was not that Bob got this wonderful shot, the iconic shot that you probably still see today. And the um, Stoker runs past the BBC cameraman, <laughs> who's not, they've not got the shot. And that was, uh, that was a, I walked into that almost my first day there. They were still talking about it like four months after it happened. But he knew, he knew that what Stoker was like and he recognised the football side of it. People would love to be down in that tunnel talking to the guys before the game, after the game. And, and, and I try to get, without reaching too many confidential conversations, I'd like to be able to put that into my work because I would be fascinated in it. And, and, and other sports, I am fascinated. I, mean, I told you about the cricket. I mean, I, I watch Sky's cricket coverage is fantastic. But the things I really like are the little nuggets about, about the personalities of the players because they're the guys that I wanted to be. I wanted to be, I don't know, let's say Alan Shearer in football. Yeah, I wanted to be... Well, I, I would only have been Jeff Boycott in cricket because that's the kind of way cricket was taught in my time. You blocked your way through a, a big score. <laughs> you certainly didn't play like uh, uh, the Joss Butlers of today. Um, and, I, and Sky did these master classes on cricket and talking to the guys. So they're fascinating people, professional sportsmen. Having been lucky enough, if I wasn't going to be one, having been lucky enough to share the company and be flatmates of, of those having to deal with the the downsides of, of being a professional sportsman. And, and, you know, it's a very much an issue today, isn't it, about depression and post-sport. But cricket, living with cricketers, I mean, they can have a good day and be absolutely over the moon. And, and the bad days, of which there are more, um, very hard to... Um, you know, to make a cup of tea for when they when they stagger in after a day's, day in the field. You mentioned um, the Dell being your big break. When mm. I used to go to the Dell, they'd put the written press in a little shed and it was always covered, always amazed me, it's always covered with blue bottles, dead blue bottles. I don't think it ever got cleaned, ever. <laughs> Although, but I didn't really mind because the Dell was so football atmospheric. Was, football grounds were like that then, weren't <laughs> But that they? was the worst. Yeah. Yeah. But I wondered, what's the worst working conditions you've had, either by because something went wrong or mm. you were not booked in well, and you've had to sit somewhere that was not conducive to doing good commentary, but you battled through? I think you always want the best seat in the house. And, you, you, you know, in the old days, it was pretty easy to get because the, the gantries were sort of slung from the roof and... You were right near the touchline. I might have had a terrible experience in Seville, um, where England produced a, a fantastic first half, happily when the technical side of it was working really well. And at half-time, um, it had been very wet in the day, and I think some water got into the wires. But at half-time, I, I suddenly 
was told, look, um, we can't get the present. The presentation studio was next to the commentary position. It wasn't a studio, it was just an outside position, and it wasn't working. So we had to pick up at no notice, really, off the, off coming back off the commercial break as the teams came out for the second half, which normally the presenter would deal with. Um, we said, you, you, you've got to commentate on that. Um, but that was that was easy. That can happen at any time. But after that, the whole sound box blew up. The monitors weren't working. Oh. And all through the second half, I could hear what was being said in my ear from the truck, but they thought I couldn't. <laughs> so our director, Phil Murphy, is a senior director here, was going, this is no good, Martin can't hear me. That's, look, remember this, Martin can't hear me. And this went on as Spain were clawing their way back into the game. And I couldn't, you, could, you said, well, why don't you take your headphones off? But then you can't hear, you can't hear yourself. And we're using these kind of microphones here. You, you can hear yourself and you need to be able to hear your own voice. Otherwise, um, you, you strain your voice to start with. Uh, so this went on for ages and it never got sorted out. And thankfully, um, in a way, <laughs> thankfully, England didn't score again because I probably couldn't have done justice to it. And the Spain goals, um, which were, um, you know, the, the first one was a problem for England. The second one really wasn't because it was like the last kick of the game. But it was, I said at the end, it's the worst 45 minutes I've had in over 40 years of broadcasting. And I was, I was, it was one of England's great performances. And I thought, oh, well, thankfully, because you know, the game was so positive for England, I think anything associated with it, even somebody talking gibberish in the <laughs> second half, which is what I did, it didn't really stick. That what, what did stick was the wonderful goals for the two from Raheem and one from Marcus, and that, they, that, that was what, what the night was all about. But it, so that, even though the old days, there were more technical glitches and football grounds were more rough and ready, um, that, 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 that's right up there. OK, let us into a secret then. When things are going well and there are no glitches and it's all very mm. smooth, who is talking to you and what sort of things do they say in your ear? Well, the match director is controlling the cameras and he may be saying, I've got a shot of this, um, do you want this? We can talk back off the, off the microphone by pressing a button which cuts out our main sound on the air. And that, that's often more the way between the, the co-commentator who might be looking for a tactical point to be made visually, show the back four, for example, and, and when the ball goes out of play. A lot of it is when the ball goes out of play. The match is covered when the ball's in play. It's all teamwork, really. I mean, it's as much a team television as, as the teams on the pitch. You know. Have you ever had to be corrected? Have you ever been told, um, Martin, you no. just called him by the wrong name? Um... If, if it's happened, I have absolutely wiped it from my memory <laughs> because I would still be losing sleep. I mean, it's, it's obviously, of course, you've, you know, I've, I've made as many mistakes as anybody, but you you try to, um, I guess, experience gives you a better way of dealing with them. Um, are you not worried? This is a tough question. Are you not worried that you're so? I know, for example, your nickname is Voice. People, you are the voice of football. You are you are multi award winning. You are the people. The voice people feel most at ease with listening to a commentary. Are you ever worried that your name is so big that people are scared to no. tell you to be better? God, no, you should, you should work here. <laughs> of course they... Now, we talk about it all the time, and, and I always go to them, the producer at the end and say, look, how do we do? And you know you can't please all of the people all the time. Um, I know, yeah. There's a, always a big thing with all the commentators who uh, he really supports them, and he supports the, the Daily Telegraph did a wonderful thing for me. 
after the League Cup final between Southampton and Manchester United in uh, 2017, um, when they printed two tweets, one saying that I was the most biased commentator ever in favour of Man United, and another one saying I was the most biased commentator ever in favour of Southampton. (laughs) And you have to live with that, and so I, I respect that. I can say quite categorically that I am both a Woking supporter and their joint assistant manager, which is an amazing thing, really. (laughs) After following them for over 60 years, I'm finally in a team photo, which... um, So they are my team, and if if people think you have to have a Premier League team... And I get this all the time. Well, you must support a Premier League team. Well, I don't. Any football fan worth his salt will say if if their team is is a football league team or non-league team, that's their team, and you don't have to have... And it's a sort of... It's one of these sort of things about uh, about football that, I, that probably not much gets my goat, but to say, well, you must have a Premier League team. I, I, I promise you I have no Premier League team. The hardest part as a commentator probably in terms of wanting to be totally impartial is that knowing the guys, you know? You, you know what it means? Somebody makes a mistake and you really know them. Um, there was a goalkeeper, Mervyn Day, who, um, who I'm still uh, godfather to his daughter, and he played in the 80s and played in some big games. And as a goalkeeper, of course, he did make some mistakes. And, and, and I'll be honest, it was quite difficult, but I had to do I had to do my... Actually, it was Gareth Southgate um, playing for Villa against Chelsea a few years ago. Obviously, a few years ago when Gareth was playing. He cost two goals. And then he was playing for England about three or four weeks later. And I said, oh, sorry about, you know... And uh, this is the Gareth that's emerged as this wonderful leader of men now. But at that time, he was a, he was a player, and he just said, uh, "Look, if you hadn't said that, you wouldn't be doing your job. I made those mistakes." So it's not always as balanced as that, I can tell you. <laughs> but that's sometimes a bit difficult. But for, for impartiality, that, that's you know, that's that's pretty easy. I actually have commentated on three or four Woking games twenty five years ago, but it was quite easy to do because once the game starts you're just this one team in red and white halves working and the other team and it's just another game of football that you're broadcasting but they're my team and and it's really weird now to find that I'm on the inside and it's strange how things work out (laughs) but uh, that's the way it is and who I mean you've seen all the greats play live is there is there a player while you've been watching a game that you have just had your breath taken away mainly from surprise you didn't quite even though you've done your research, that player produced something beyond what you might have expected and you felt emotional about how good it was. I can give you one example. I'm always thrilled when players work their way up the leagues. And um, I came across Ricky Lambert a few times in the lower divisions. Uh, and then he, he went to Southampton in the lower divisions and, then, and they got promoted to the Premier League and we covered their first game in the Premier League away to Manchester City. And uh, I went down to watch them train, and I, I saw all the players, but I saw Ricky, and I went to the Premier League. What? And he said, oh, I'm not playing. So, um, and he was sub. Yeah, I'm still thinking, oh, this is a great story. You know, I worked in a factory, and here he is now. And um, he came on, and he scored four minutes later. And I don't know whether that, lots of the goals that I've commentated on are, are on YouTube. I don't know where that is, but I gave that a bit more than that. <laughs> I would have done because the story was, yeah, he surprised me. And then he went on to surprise and I commentated on his England goals as well. <laughs> so, but that in the Premier League, you know, for having been in the, in the fourth tier, the third tier, the second tier, and then to come and do it at a, quite a, a senior age for a footballer. 
um, that was yeah that, that that was one of delight really for yeah. for him. And do you feel comfortable sharing who your favourite players are or have been? Well, I, I, I told you I was a wannabe centre forward, so they're all strikers. I, I mean, it's, I just admire those who can do it. I mean, Shearer's goals are incredible. Um, 260, and, and he and I both think it's 261 because um, there was a goal in a game against Manchester United, actually, that goes down as a Wes Brown own goal, which I'm sure should have been Alan's goal back in... Um, the early early two thousands, and um, Marco van Basten was a special a special favourite uh, because he worked so hard. I remember, I, we're a time when we covered the Serie A, and they were winning, I think six two away to a little club called Foggia, and and the game was just going. And he raced back into his own half, won the ball, played a one two, and went through and scored the seventh. You know, and I just thought. Yeah, that's that's kind of proper, um, and of course I, I got to know him a little bit. He was he was the manager of the the national team. I've got a photograph at home actually. Um, my son did a bit of internship at Sky on a on an Amsterdam tournament, and was actually a sort of runner. And they sat him down between the dugouts, and he sat next to Marco van Basten, and they, we cut up a shot on the air. Here's Marco van Basten, but it had had my son in the shot as well. So very kindly, um, Steve Smith, who's one of the the, the the top men here at Sky Sports now, he got a photo taken off the he froze frame it somewhere, and um, and I sent me a, a print of it. So I've got a print of my son and my hero sitting next to each other. Oh, that's so, lovely. Yeah. My, only, my only Marco van Basten story is a bit embarrassing is that I was in Milan visiting a friend and we went to a bar and uh, some of the guys in the bar said, uh, yeah, who's she? <laughs> For some reason I said, oh, I'm Marco van Basten's girlfriend. And I got free drinks all night. It's the only time I've ever done that, find you. Who, who do you say whose girlfriend it is now to I get your free drinks? <laughs> it was my only time. And, uh, but it, I don't know where it came from. I think this are. podcast would be a lot more interesting if I had interviewed <laughs> you. <laughs> right, my final question to you is, where do you stand on the sound of silence? Do you remind yourself every game? Sometimes it's good to shut up. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I could never have done radio commentary. I, I, funny enough, I... Before I got the chance in television, I did have an audition at what would now be called Radio 5, and it was an on-site audition. I did the first half of a game at Wembley. It was England, Northern Ireland, and the old home internationals. Jim Rosenthal did the second half, and we were both sort of on trial. And it was nil-nil at half-time in my half, and four-nil it finishing. But I... I had no sort of stamina for radio, really. I'm a natural pauser, I think. I don't know whether this podcast probably doesn't prove that, but I am. You're asking me all these questions. But the, um, I, I, I find my natural way of living, if you like, and, it, and go back to your earlier question, what I do is me. It's not, it's not an act at all. So uh, somebody told me the other day, I think, is it nine seconds or 11 seconds between my Aguero and then... Um, I swear you'll never see anything like that again. And, and that was a natural pause caused by the fact that it was the noisiest football ground ever. And if I'd said anything, you wouldn't have heard it. But no, silence is golden. Martin Tyler, thank you very much. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Now approaching.
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.